following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. On July 16th, 1945, a handful of scientists and military personnel gathered in New Mexico to witness the detonation of the world's first atomic bomb. Interesting about that event, it was heralding the end of World War II. It was also announcing the superiority and supremacy of the United States of America in military ventures uh, for decades. But not everything was as it appeared to be meaning not everyone attending the detonation was who they appeared to be because nestled among that small cadre of scientists who spearheaded this Manhattan Project was Klaus Huch, a German-born British physicist who was, in fact, a Soviet spy. As U.S. military commanders congratulated themselves for an incredible job well done and hopefully ushering in the end of World War II, Klaus was congratulating himself over a different issue, and that was that he had already delivered the plans of the atomic bomb to the Soviet officials even before it was detonated. Interesting enough, British intelligence caught up with Klaus five years later, and his confession revealed a devastating Soviet spy ring that had been stealing U.S. military secrets for over a decade. His cohorts, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, were arrested and ultimately executed, and Klaus spent nine years in prison, but the damage was already done. Years sooner than anyone expected, the Soviet Union, devastated by the war, yet detonated its first atomic bomb, the Cold War escalated to a dangerous new height as the United States, totally unprepared, engaged the Soviets in a nuclear arms race that would keep the world fearful of nuclear annihilation for the next 50 years because of one guy. It's amazing the kind of damage that a well-placed enemy operative can inflict. Years of research, layers of security, all undone because Klaus and his cohort slipped past the defenses wearing the mask of friendship. Interesting enough, that's exactly how God's enemies infiltrate the church. As spies throughout history... Satan has launched innumerable overt, obvious attacks on the church that are very obvious. Everybody understands that persecution, false religion, but the most damaging attacks by far are those that come from within. Inside operators, people in our midst, pretenders, infiltrating the church. And it's happened everywhere. False teachers within the church can take many forms. They can teach a Sunday school class. They can lead worship on Sunday. Sometimes 
they become elders and deacons, and probably worst of all, some of them can be teaching the Word of God to our youth or even to the entire church. Whatever form they take, all false teachers claim they love the church, they love the Lord, they love the Word, all of them. And yet behind the scenes, they hinder the effectiveness of God's work amongst His people and in the community. They pretend to speak truth, and yet they twist the Scripture in order to manipulate people to not live up to their potential, to not live holy before God, and to basically malign the gospel in a way where it loses its effectiveness. They are, on the surface, living biblically. They appear to profess right gospel. They appear to be on your side. They seem to proclaim and own right doctrine. On the surface, at least, they live biblically, but beneath the surface, they practice deceit. They breed disunity. They sow confusion with the goal of creating division. They mix cultural thinking in the midst of biblical truth to weaken the effect of the truth of God's Word and particularly the Gospel. Many of them live unholy lives which then also cause the name of Christ to be diminished in the world. But they try to destroy the clarity or communication of the Gospel and they do it by diluting and distorting the good news. And here's the key. The one way that they do this that you are most familiar with and you must never forget, never forget that their goal is to try to get the church to turn its focus from where it needs to be. Turn its focus from Christ. Turn its focus to, from the gospel. Turn its focus to equipping and ministry to something else. And what they do is they create disunity. They create division. Uh, they start arguing over who wears a mask and who doesn't, and what vaccine is taken and what vaccine is not taken. People get so hurt, so divided, so wounded, no one worships Christ anymore because they're so hurt. They don't evangelize the lost. They don't share the gospel. They don't minister to each other. They don't exercise their giftedness because there's, now there's such a division and hurt in their midst, and that's what they do best. They ultimately harm the church. And given the kind of damage false teachers can cause the church, it's no wonder that Peter spends an absolute total of a, a whole chapter in his final epistle on false teachers, where we find ourselves in 2 Peter chapter 2, to aggressively warn us against them. In fact, you say, Chris, this is really not an issue for me. I mean, I don't really think about this at all. You should, because Paul warns you, Jude warns you, Peter is now warning you, and the Lord Jesus himself warned you about false teachers. He wants you to know this. You need to know this. And God's word is more than just filled with warnings. It's absolutely clear as to how we can identify who they are, how we can see them and spot them in our midst. The scripture points and paints a very disturbing portrait about how false teachers operate so we can recognize them before they hurt the church before they destroy the gospel or undermine the word. Come on, folks. This is really, really important. Students, this is important. Brothers and sisters, this is happening all around us, and you already know it. You say, what do you mean? You're surrounded in our community and in our country and in our world by a bogus Christianity that promotes false ways to be saved. Many say, well, you just pray a prayer once, and then you're secure in salvation, and even though there's no fruit, there's no evidence of Christ being in your life at all. 
Others think believing the right doctrine makes you saved, even though it says demons believe, and of course they're not saved. Students often think, well, since they come from a Christian home, they're definitely got to be born again. I mean, mom and dad are. Some believe if they have a camp experience with Jesus, they can live any way they like. Or even others, a few believe they're saved because they go to a Bible church and Bibles in their name. Some believe if you feel guilty about your sin and you think that Christ is the Savior, well, then you got to be saved. Listen, all those are incorrect. You must be, according to the Scripture, born again. Say that with me. Born again. Transform. Memorize John 3.3. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you are what? Born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy caused us to be again, born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, true Christianity is a historical fact that is grounded in history and reality, but it requires a supernatural transformation by God's Spirit for it to be true for you. It is true in history, but it, for in it to be a true salvation experience, it must be the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. So Peter writes chapter 2 to make sure that we're clear on this and that we can identify those who are teaching the wrong gospel. So he writes chapter 2 to sharpen your discernment so you can discern what is true and what is false. He writes chapter 2 so to convict your heart that if you're imitating these false guys in any way, that you would then respond in repentance. He writes chapter 2 because he wants you to grow in your love for the Savior. And our Savior is truth, and He loves truth. He loves the truth. He wrote chapter 2 to motivate you to share the gospel with those who don't believe the correct gospel. And he wrote chapter 2 to warn you of the deception of the false to help you help those who are confused. So God spent the early verses of chapter 2 to make sure that he'd tell us, look, I know that some of you are broken up about this. Some of you are really in pain because the false teachers have damaged the churches that I'm writing to in Asia. And I want you to know that those false teachers are going to be judged. And he makes it really clear. Just like Noah in the time of Noah, just like the angels were judged, these false teachers are going to be judged. And then he spends verses 10 through 22 to explain what they're like so that we can identify them, we can understand them, we can see them clearly. And so he talks about their beliefs and their behaviors in these verses and their personality and their practices. And he talks about their character and their conduct. And he does all of that so that he exposes their true nature and to show you just how bad they really are. He wants you to know that. So long ago, we looked at point number one, their primaries, and that's talking about the two major areas of sin in the life of a false teacher, and that is that they're feeling-driven and they despise authority. They do everything according to their lusts, according to verse 10, and yet they also don't do anything that anybody else tells them to do. Secondly, their pride, verses 10 and 11, false teachers are audacious. They are defiant in the way that they deal with people. They're obstinate. They're determined to do their own thing. They're so arrogant, they will do what the holy angels won't do, and that's to rebuke demons, etc. So he tells them that. And then number three in your outline, their predisposition, verse 14, false teachers are unpredictable and they are dangerous. Just like unreasoning animals, they are deadly to be around. You don't want to put your hand down there because you're going to get bit. Understand they present themselves as though they're going to help your walk with God, but they actually harm your walk with God. And they're predisposed to oppose the work of God, to malign the person of Christ, 
to distort the only true gospel in every way they can. They want you not to hear the gospel. They want you to hear a false gospel. They want that. Last week we studied their passion. Write down one word. Their passion is money. Money. In fact, verse 14, having a heart trained in greed. Accursed children, he says. Verse 15, forsaken the right way, they've gone astray. They have abandoned these messengers of error, the right way, they have departed from Acts 13.10, the straight ways of the Lord. Hi, they, how do they do that? They pursue wealth over worship. Wealth over worship. False teachers have become skilled. They go to the gym. They work out. So they're better and better and better at manipulating people to give them money. That's how greedy they are. And you've seen it on television. You've watched them do what they do. They're skilled at it. And Peter is so disgusted, he shouts at the end of verse 14, accursed children. What he means by that is they're headed towards hell's eternal curse. Because they act just like the Old Testament compromising prophet Balaam. Look at verse 15. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the what? The wages of unrighteousness. He loved dirty money. He loved getting it evilly. (laughs) I just made that up. Balaam foolishly preferred money over mission. Wealth over worship. And he was so crazy, so mad, so out of his mind, basically the text says, that, that, that he had to be confronted by his own donkey. Can you imagine that? Your donkey turns back to you and says, Hey, knock it off. That's what happened. Look at verse 16. He received a rebuke from his own transgressions for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the crazy madness of the prophet. And yet he loved money so much he still led Israel into lustful sin. So how does God react to that? How does, what does God think of that kind of behavior? What these guys are doing? What does he really feel and what is he going to do? Listen, when they forsake the scripture, when they reject the Bible, number five in your outline, they get a penalty. Verse 17, look at it. The penalty of verse 17. These are springs without water. They're mists driven by a storm or clouds driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. These give nothing because they've got nothing to give. They're empty promises. They're like an empty well. They're like clouds that never rain. They never deliver what they promise. And Peter describes the false teachers as those who cannot deliver what they promise. And the result is verse 17, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. They will suffer the consequences of the worst punishment that anyone can ever experience for all eternity. In fact, the blackness of hell is what he's talking about there. Matthew 8, 12. This is not the only time that hell is referred to as blackness. It says we will, they will be cast out into outer darkness. And the tense of this reserved for them, this blackness, is something that's been reserved in the past, but it is now awaiting them in the future. That's the tense of the verb, basically telling us this is certain, friends. This is unavoidable. This is going to happen. Peter never hesitated to tell us that the punishment of these false teachers will be eternal blackness in hell. And he never hesitated to tell us, to tell anyone who is not with in Christ, that they too will experience this kind of eternal darkness. So today, 
Peter describes, number six in your outline, now you're filling in a blank, persuasion. Persuasion, their persuasion. Now, there's another blank there. I don't know how it got there. It doesn't belong there. It's the same blank. So it's both persuasion, okay? So in your notes, if you're taking notes, they're both persuasion, verses 18 and 19. And how do they think? How do they justify their error? How do they manipulate genuine believers and capture the make-believers or almost-believers in the midst of the church? Well, read verses 18 and 19 and see if you can figure out their main swan song, their main message. It says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires and by sensuality and those who barely escape the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are existing as slaves of corruption. For what a man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. Did you catch the one word? Did you see it there? Summarizes their whole persuasion. When they're persuading someone to buy into their false teaching, they're using a term or they're using a thought. And that thought is the word freedom. Personal freedom. You might want to circle that in your Bible. They teach you're free to live in sin. You could call yourself a Christian and live any way you like. And that's exactly what these false teachers are talking about. They brag about how Christ has freed them from any and all condemnation. Now, if you're listening to me right now, you should say, wait a minute, Chris. I am free from any and all condemnation. Can I hear an amen to that? Listen, if you're in Christ, are you free from condemnation? Yes or no? Yes, you are. But they take it a step further. They teach God's grace and salvation means you are released from the constraints of God's word, making it possible for you to sin as much as you want. False teachers back then and today have twisted Christian freedom into something that it's not. They teach that Christian freedom is a license to do whatever you desire. So let's contrast these two. Christian freedom, the true one, as Christ intended it, is the ability or the freedom to do what is right based on God's word. It is the freedom to obey the word of God. I want you to say that with me. The freedom to obey God's word. Ready, everybody? The freedom to obey God's word. Let's try it again, everybody. The freedom to obey God's word. That's Christian freedom. For the first time in your life, you're able to obey God's word. You couldn't obey God before. You couldn't live a life pleasing to God before you knew Christ. But once you're in Christ, you have the ability to obey, to honor Him. The false view teaches that Christian freedom means that God is happy and loving and pleased with you as you live with your boyfriend. But the Bible teaches that Christian freedom actually means for the first time you actually can obey God's word from a new heart that wants to obey God's word. The false view teaches that Christian freedom, supposedly which comes in Christ for them, results in a freedom from all authority. It results in a freedom from all moral demands that are presented in the word of God. But the Bible teaches that salvation results in a freedom from sin for the first time, so now you can live a life that will please God by living in according to the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. Today, the false view teaches that you're free, by way of example, not to spank your children as parents. Since they're not saved yet, they say, or they can't obey you 
when the Bible actually teaches that parents are to spank their kids since they need to know how bad sin is. They need to know, secondly, the consequences of sin. And number three, they need to know desperately they need a Savior. That's why you do it. False teachers are great at, look at verse 18, enticing. Enticing new believers who've just been freed from the clutches of sexual sin. Notice verse 18, the fleshly desires, the sensuality there. They, They would teach it's okay to keep fornicating, to keep committing adultery, because you're free to do what you want to do under grace, they say. You say, well, they don't teach that in the Bible. They never taught that then. Yes, they did. Take a look at Jude 4. Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into what? Licentiousness, to sensuality, to sexual sin, to fleshly desires. They turn God's grace into an excuse for sin and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The irony is as they're teaching all this, as they're boastful about all this, and every time these liars raise the flag of personal freedom, they were currently slaves to their own sexual habits and addictions. I mean, they're telling everybody, you can be free, but they're enslaved. They're bold about Christian freedom, but their example is hypocritical. They're bold about Christian freedom, but their exhortations are hypocritical. Take a look at verse 18 again. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape the ones who live in error, promising the freedom while they themselves are existing as slaves of corruption. They're they're promising freedom. They're existing, though, as slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, this by he's enslaved. False teachers can't deliver freedom because they're enslaved. And they're enslaved to the very corruption that they're trying to teach people that they can escape from. And as they push the false freedom, Peter wants to tell us how they do it. How do they push this freedom on us? How do they communicate this with elaborate, noisy, empty words? He talks about it in verse 18. Take a look at it. It says, speaking arrogant words of vanity. That means haughty. It means pompous. It means bombastic. They speak great, swelling words of vanity. They speak high-sounding nonsense. Have you heard that? High-sounding nonsense. You might want to write this down. They literally are intoxicated by the exuberance of their own verbosity. Don't you love that? They're intoxicated by the exuberance of their own verbosity. False teachers deceive the weak with high-sounding words. They masquerade as scholarship. They pose as profound spiritual insight. They're posers. Now, who of us in the last five months have not heard politicians speak incredibly huge words and say nothing at all. That's what they do. You know, I know you have kids, or you may have kids, or some of you have kids, and you have grandkids, and if you have kids or grandkids, you know what bubbles are. Everybody know what bubbles are? Bubbles. Bubble wands, bubble guns, bubble, giant bubbles, bubble machines. Bubbles are awesome. I love bubbles. I love playing with bubbles. They're impressive. They're amazing. They're seemingly, aren't they kind of seemingly miraculous? I mean, they're, they're spheres of soapy water and air, but in a moment they pop, they're gone, and then there's just a drop of, you know, little sewage, whatever. All false teachers, what they do is they blow bubbles, verbal bubbles. What they teach is literally, he says here, noise without substance. What they say is worthless, 
because they're devoid of truth. They're impressive. You go, ooh, and ah, but it's empty air, good for nothing except for a temporary show. Temporary show. He adds this word, verse 18, look at it, they entice. You might want to put down fishing or hunting right next to it because that's exactly what's happening here. That means to entrap, to lure, uh, like a bait uh, on a hook or baiting an animal trap. If you've ever tried to catch mice in your garage or rats in your attic or bugs or whatever, you understand what it means to entice them. You know, you've got the little peanut butter bait with the poison, and so they come, they eat that, they die. And it's wonderful. Um, Just like worldly philosophy or even false religions or errant Christianity at times, There's sometimes, you know, when they communicate, there's an emotional wow. Uh, There's a logical appeal. But in the end, it's contrary to God's word, meaning it's worthless. It's like a bubble. It has no value at all. Remember Job's three friends? They were logical. His three friends were convincing. I mean, incredible. And, And they were even zealous. And each one of them was absolutely wrong in everything they said. So are the false teachers. They expound with knowledge. They're boastful, but they're contrary to the Scriptures, what makes them errant on every front. In fact, Peter also mentions their talk and teaching is lascivious. Look at verse 18 again. Look at it. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. They, when they speak, they appeal to your lower nature. They're trying to, as a believer, to to cause you to remember the way of the flesh that you used to be dominated by. And if you're a non-believer or an almost believer, they're appealing to that fallen nature and that lowest desire. Rather than proclaim the word is written leading to Christ's likeness, they offer their listener a type of belief that they can hold on to and still continue to sin their lustful lifestyle. They say, there's no need for you to repent of your desires and lust. That's covered under the cross. You're under grace. No problem. And then added, verse 18, which is tough to understand, so I want you to pay attention here. Take a look at that phrase that I've been reading, and you're going, what does that mean? It says that phrase in verse 18, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. You say, what does that mean? Let me tell you, write this down. The phrase actually describes those who are close to the truth, but do not escape those from error. There there are people in the church that are almost believers, make believers. They're not quite saved yet. They haven't submitted to Christ yet. They're being drawn. They might be close, but they cannot escape those from error. And that's the deadliness of the false teacher. They mess with Christians, but they destroy the non-Christian. They destroy the make-believer. They destroy the almost-believer. And that's why it's so devastating. The Bible talks of people who are almost Christians. Did you know that? It does. Festus in Acts, when we studied Acts, and and Herod Antipas, they were almost believers. Even Felix, who was trembling at the, the gospel message by Paul, he's trembling at it, but he doesn't repent. He's an almost believer. He almost got there. He almost turned from his sin and turned to Christ, but he remains lost. And the context of this points to lost people, not the saved. This is people who are vulnerable, people who go to church but don't know Christ, make believers, almost believers. Listen, if we read the Bible carefully and you look at verse 9, verse 9 tells you that a Christian cannot lose their salvation. A Christian cannot be ultimately deceived by a false teacher 
but an almost Christian can, but a make-believer can. Many church attenders have high levels of guilt and great anxieties. A lot of times they're people with marriage trouble and broken marriages. They're lonely. They're weary of the consequences of sin. And they're looking for a new start. Maybe that's some of you. Maybe that's part of your story. They come to church looking for help from God. They, they become the people false teachers love to exploit. That's why we're always on alert for false teachers. Because people who are worn out by sin, they're looking for a do-over. And the false teachers want to manipulate them, these type of hurting people. But here's the danger. The danger for all of you and the danger for all of us. Are you ready? Temporary reformation without repentance is not going to do you any good. Temporary reformation on the outside. The person who reforms themselves on the outside only leads to greater sin and judgment. Reformation only cleans up the outside. Regeneration changes the inside. You get the difference? Reformation, I'm, I'm looking better, I'm dressing better, I don't look as horrible as I did as a, you know, just a practicing sinner, but I'm still a sinner internally. I need to be regenerated, born again, changed internally, born again. Sinful tendencies don't disappear when a person reforms their outside. They just hibernate and get stronger. Like, holiness is not simply refusing to do evil things. Understand, true holiness is more than conquering temptation. It's conquering even the desire to disobey God. You can expect nothing but false freedom from false teachers who offer false promises. False freedom from false teachers who offer false promises. Born-again Christians are freed. True born-again believers are freed from the penalty of sin forever and from the power of sin, and that will be seen in their life in some measure over time. Not today, not next week, but over time, there's going to be a growth, a progress. Not perfection ever, but a progress. You're going to see greater levels of holiness in that person. But all genuine believers can resist the deception of false teachers, and that's verse 9, the promise of verse 9 in this chapter. Occasionally, baby Christians might get caught in the false teacher net, but because they're true believers and secure in Christ, the Lord will rescue them in time from false doctrine. So you must be born again. Born again. You say, Chris, how do you know that that internal change has occurred? There are several indicators in Scripture. I want to give you three. Three ways you know that you're born again. They all start with the word, the letter, excuse me, W. Are you ready? The first one, you're willing. You're willing to do whatever Christ wants you to do. You're willing to do. That's Luke 14. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter, you know, what your wealth is or lack of wealth or your friends are. You will be willing to do what Christ wants you to do. Doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly. Doesn't mean you're going to always achieve this incredible nirvana of, of willingness. But you're going to be willing. You want to will. You want to do what he wants you to do. That's willing. Number two, want to. Want to. That's Romans 6.17. You've given a heart that wants to obey. You want to please Him. You want to obey the Scripture. Listen, if you're born again and you have a new heart, the Bible tells you in Romans 6.17, you have a heart now that wants to obey. You would want to please Him. Even when you fail to please Him, when you're laying face down after a massive defeat of sin, you're still laying there, but you're saying in your heart of hearts, I still want to obey. That's the heart of a believer. Not a perfect heart, but a heart that says, I want to do what he wants me to do. And the last W is worship. Worship. 
that you're all in. You're a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. You want to do what he wants you to do. And you're saying, you know what? He is worthy. I see him for who he is. I see him as God. I see him as way bigger than me. I see myself as the sinner and he as the savior. And I want to worship him. Again, will you do it perfectly? No. But do you want to? Absolutely. You want to be all in. You want to be all his. You want him to be your first love. There isn't a single Christian here that doesn't want Christ as their first love. Doesn't mean that he is all the time and that you're not distracted and you don't fail miserably at it, but you want it because that's the newborn again heart. Understand, you need to make sure today that you're not playing the game, that you're not one of those that could be susceptible to a false teacher. Occasionally, like I said, baby Christians might get messed up a little bit, but God's going to rescue them. But you need to make sure that you're in Christ because when someone buys into bad doctrine and buys into a false gospel that's demonstrating that they don't know christ it's demonstrating that now read verse 19 promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption you can't set someone free if you're in bondage yourself and so here are these false teachers in bondage to sin they've not been freed by christ and peter makes sure and makes clear that these men had temporary disdain, disentangled themselves from the pollution of the world they had reformed on the outside they professed to be saved but they did not possess christ you know those terms they professed christ but they did not possess christ they've not been redeemed they've not been born again they only had an external Christianity. They escaped the defilements of the world on the outside, but they were not transformed by God on the inside. They were reformed, but they were not regenerated. And the tenses of the verbs in 2 Peter chapter 2, 19 are present, which means that promising them freedom from liberty while themselves are existing present tense as slaves in corruption. And what that means is they continually promise freedom while they are continually slaves of sin themselves. They claim to be the servants of God, but they're actually the servants of sin. That's what's happening here. It's bad enough to be a slave, but when sin is your master, that's a bad thing. And they're even worse. Look at verse 19. They are slaves of corruption. That's the worst kind of sin, a sickening immorality, the ruination of people that give themselves over. And there are people in our society who give themselves over to deception, defiance, and disorder. Remember Seattle and CHOP? That's an external illustration of the internal reality of what he's talking about here. Absolute chaos, no rules, no police, letting people live on their own. So it's supposed to be this orderly society, and it's a nightmare. A nightmare. That's corruption. It's a debauched system that these false teachers buy into, like a poisonous vapor or a disease or a lethal pollution. They already are in it, and that's what they propagate. Peter has already informed us about the kinds of sins that these false teachers are very much given to. First, they were in bondage to money. Their covetousness moved them to use every kind of deceptive technique to exploit innocent people to get money. They are also, secondly, they're in bondage to their fleshly lusts. And they are actually focused in this text, in this chapter, focused on weak women and possibly even weak men and boys in light of Sodom and Gomorrah to express their lusts. And thirdly, they were enslaved to pride. To pride, they thought of nothing of speaking evil of all authority, even over the angels of God. They promote themselves and they deride everybody else. Everybody else. It's sad to say that there are actually people today who love proud men. They follow proud men. They support proud men in the context of the church. 
men who elevate themselves. It's also interesting to compare the three men that Peter named in this chapter, Noah, Lot, and Balaam, right? Think about Noah for a second. He kept himself completely separated from the apostate world of his day. He boldly preached God's righteousness, the Bible tells us in Genesis, and was faithful to his walk and his witness, but no one but his family followed the Lord. So that's Noah. Then you look at Lot. He knew the truth. He kept himself pure, but he did not keep himself separated. As a result, he lost his family. Lot hated the wickedness of Sodom, yet he lived in the midst of it, and by doing so, he exposed his daughters and his wife to godless influences. And then that's Noah, that's Lot, then Balaam. Balaam's mentioned in this chapter. Not only did he follow the ways of sin, but he encouraged other people to sin. He actually tried to get Israel to sin. No separation internally or externally. He, he taught King Balak how to seduce the nation of Israel, and his plan almost succeeded. Lot lost his family. Balaam lost his very soul and his life. Peter warns Christian of the deceitfulness of sin. I think it's much more healthy for us to be pursuing Christ-likeness than to put all of our emphasis on the fleeing of sin, but we need to flee sin. We need to not minimize that. Sin promises freedom, but in the end it brings bondage. Sin promises life, but in the end it brings death. Sin has a way of gradually binding a person until there's no way of escape except for some divine intervention. Even the bondage sin creates is deceitful for people who are bound actually think they're free. Too late, they discover they're prisoners of their own appetites. Think about it. Do you think you're free to have premarital sex and then it destroys trust and respect in the relationship? It creates a paralyzing guilt that you can't get rid of or wash away. It robs you of joy and will ruin the relationship. You think you're free to take those pills or smoke that pot or get drunk and then quickly you find yourself either addicted or secretly living a, a, a dual life, a hypocritical life, leading to all kinds of sorrow, especially hurting those who are closest to you. You follow your freedoms and steal from work, and then you're caught and fired. You think you can treat your spouse with attitude, deception, yelling, indifference. You think no one knows. You think it won't make any difference, but God says he actually closes the windows of heaven to that couple. And sin will result in terrible consequences. Sin is deceitful in every way. So what is the false teacher persuasion? Number six and number seven on your notes. What is the persuasion? What are one of the main manipulations? Well, false teachers twist the concept of Christian freedom into something that's not. They teach that freedom is the license to do whatever you so-called believer desires. God calls that evil. Make no mistake, friends, those who teach that, and there's a gospel today that is so prevalent, and it teaches that very truth. You're under grace. Do whatever you want. That is condemned by God in the most severe terms by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse, excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It says, what do we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Verse 2, may it never be the strongest negative in the Greek language. The strongest one. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Jesus Christ came to bring freedom. You died to sin when you became a Christian. You no longer slave to sin. Can I hear an amen to that? I know. Now, sometimes we struggle with sin, but we're no longer the slave. I get it. 
In the Bible, freedom does not mean doing your own thing or having your own way. That attitude, you know, doing your own thing, having your own way, that's the very essence of sin itself. The freedom that Jesus Christ offers means enjoying the fulfillment in the will of God. It means achieving your greatest potential for the glory of God. Jesus frees us to become the very best in this life, and our very best is to be like Christ. In other words, when you say freedom, Christian freedom, is now you can do what God wants for the first time in your life. And actually, what God wants, are you ready, is the best thing for you. The best thing for you. False teachers lead their followers into bondage by means of lies. But our Lord and the true teacher brings us into freedom by means of truth. Again, one more time. The false teacher leads their followers into bondage by means of lies, but the apostles bring us into freedom by means of truth. John 8, 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. The truth of the Word of God will make you free, and the Word of God is designed to accomplish two main paths of freedom, which alone bring glory to God. Two main ways that you bring glory to God. Are you ready? Here they are. The two main ways that you bring glory to God. Write them down. Number one, you come to Christ in salvation. What does he say in Romans 10, 17? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the what? The word of Christ. You can't get rid of sin on your own. Some of you are going, man, my marriage issues. I got, you know, all kinds of problems in the home with the kids. I, even in my own life and heart, I still am lusting here. I'm angry here. I'm impatient there. That cannot be fixed, my friends, by anything and anyone other than Jesus Christ. You try to clean up your own act, all you're doing is reforming the outside. You need to be transformed. You need to be born again. You need to be regenerated. You'll never get to heaven any other way. You'll never, unless you exchange all that you are, you give up your life, your way, and you exchange it for all that Christ is. You say, Lord, I, I can't. You have to do this. You have to save me. Cry out for a new born-again heart. And then number two is to become like Christ in sanctification. To be more like Him. As we walk in dependence upon the Spirit of God, as we walk in obedience to the Word of God dependently, relying on Him, saying, Lord, You can deliver me. Listen, hey, look up here. Put him to the test, Christian. Put him to the test on some of the issues you're battling with right now. And we're all in this. Every one of you is a sinner. Can I hear an amen? And every one of you has sinned at least this week, yes? Okay. So put him to the test and say, Lord, I'm going to depend on you and your word on this issue and see what he does. Just put him to the test by faith. Say, I'm going to memorize the scripture. I'm going to live according to the truth. I'm going to depend on that truth. I'm going to make my stand on your word. And I'm going to depend on you and see what he does. Not in everything, one thing. And see what he does. Because our God is powerful. And our God has freed you from sin. And you can make progress in holiness in this life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word and these wonderful warnings from Peter. We pray, Father, that we might glorify you and honor you today by our response. And, Father, that would be that there might be some here, as we sang earlier, that head full of rocks and, and heart made of stone. That's me. That was me before Christ. And you awakened and softened my heart. And you gave me the ability to think and understand who you are and what you did 
so I could then cry out and you would then give me faith and repentance to respond. Father, make that true of some today, that they would depend on you for salvation and no one else, that they would rely on you causing them to be born again. And Father, for the rest of us who do know you, we pray, Father, that we might rely on your word and, rely, and depend on your spirit and trust you that you can make progress in our life. And yeah, there'll be failure and there'll be, there'll be three steps forward and two steps back. But Father, we pray that we might continue to depend on you and believe you for great things in our own hearts as well as in life around us. We pray, Father, that uh, you would be pleased with how we respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.